We're going to be in John chapter 11 tonight. John chapter 11. Very grateful for the opportunity to preach. As always, um, I spend my day with uh, some fifth and sixth graders every day whom I love dearly. Uh, and uh, so I have to bring things to their level a lot of the time. So I do appreciate the opportunity to uh, preach to adults every now and then, even though I do preach to them sometimes like they're adults. Uh, and they take it like adults sometimes too, so that's good. Um, but I am very grateful for the opportunity. Uh, as always, I, I don't take it lightly at all, and I'm um, just excited to see what the Lord's going to do. This is a message that He has been working in, in my heart for quite some time now, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to share it with the rest of you. John chapter 11. You can remain seated because we're going to do quite a bit of reading tonight, uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a great story, so you should, you should uh, be paying attention to it the entire time. So uh, if you're there in John chapter 11, we're going to read about one of Jesus' most famous miracles, and it is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So let's take a look at it tonight, starting in verse number 1. The Bible says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of his sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us go that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. 
And when she had said, so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she had heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house and, comf and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold, how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave, as it was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. And we'll stop there for now, but I won't leave you hanging. We'll pick up where, where we left off later on in the message. Many times in our lives, we may find that the situations that we're going through don't always quite match up with the expectations that we may have had. You know, uh, maybe we thought that something was going to turn out one way, but then a wrench gets thrown into our, into our plans, and now everything seems like a big old mess. Maybe we thought that the time had come for a particular prayer request to be answered or a particular progression in life to occur, but it seems that God had other plans, and now we're left waiting. And then something like that happens, when something like that happens, a common default of a lot of us is that we may start to question God. And it's not our intention, but it just is kind of something that we find ourselves doing. Whatever it may be tonight, I think most of us in here, we've all experienced points in our lives where we've had certain expectations set of what we thought God was going to do or should do, but the situations that followed seem to greatly contradict those expectations. And maybe even they seem to contradict what we believed about God. I think that's possibly what happened with Mary and Martha and how they felt when in this passage that we just read. You know, upon reading verses 5 and 6 of John chapter 11, uh, one might think that those two verses seem to contradict each other. I'm paraphrasing when I say this, but it basically says that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And when he heard that Lazarus, his friend whom he loved, was sick... He waited two whole days before even leaving to go and see them. At first glance, that doesn't seem like the most loving response to news of somebody that you love who is dying. And for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they knew that Jesus loved them, but it seemed like his actions contradicted what they knew about him. Now, I, I know for this crowd in here on a Wednesday night, most of us would realize that any time the Word of God seems to contradict itself, the problem is not with the Word of God. The problem is with our understanding and interpretation of the Word of God. But tonight, I want us to put ourselves in the position of Mary and Martha, because while we have this whole story laid out for us with the happy ending and all, they experienced every single moment of it. And for them, it was a great trial of faith. You know, they're human, just like, just like we are. They cried out to Jesus for help because they believed that he would help them. But as time went by and Lazarus grew more sick, Jesus was still nowhere to be found. 
And I imagine they're thinking, oh, he'll be here. You know, he, I know he will. He, he won't let us down. He's healed multitudes. Surely he will heal our brother. But still no Jesus. And eventually, Lazarus dies. And the crushing reality of the situation seemed to greatly contradict the expectations that they had of God. And I can't help but wonder if when the, the messenger returned back to Mary and Martha after giving the message, and the Bible seems to indicate that Lazarus was already dead at that point, but Jesus was still nowhere to be found, that they, that they wondered, you know, where is Jesus? What's taking him so long to come? I, I mean, Lazarus is, is dead now, but doesn't Jesus know what we're going through? Doesn't he know that we need him? Why, do, why does it seem like he doesn't even care? And I'm not trying to get us to look at Mary and Martha in a bad light tonight, but I don't think it's far-fetched to assume that Mary and Martha would have entertained these thoughts in the midst of the trial that they were going through, just like I don't think it's far-fetched to assume that all of us have thought those same thoughts at one point or another in the midst of our own trials, and some may be entertaining them even now. The thing is, in this story, Jesus does eventually show up. But to Mary and Martha, he's four days late. Tonight I want to preach on this topic, when God is late. And how, when God is late, the best possible course of action to take is to just keep waiting on him. I think you get it at this point already. The title of this message is obviously tongue-in-cheek, uh, though the thought behind it is not, because while we all have no problem admitting with our mouths that God is never late, our reaction and attitudes towards the trials or difficulty that, difficulties that God allows into our lives often will prove otherwise. So let's dive into it tonight, and I pray that the Lord will use this message to encourage you as he's already greatly encouraged me with it. When God is late, keep waiting, because point number one, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. As I said before, one may look at the, the response that Jesus had in, in, in hearing that Lazarus was sick and think it may be a bit callous. Uh, you know, the disciples were, were there with Jesus when he got this message. And I have to imagine that several of them probably took this message as a cue that they were going to pack up and head to Bethany immediately. But remember... Jesus knows what he's doing, even when we have no idea what he's doing. And it's here that Jesus tells his disciples something very, very important. He says in verse number four, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now question for all of you Bible scholars in here, Wednesday night crowd. Does Lazarus die later in this chapter? He does. The answer is obviously yes to that. Well, then why does Jesus say that the sickness is not unto death? Well, because Jesus knows something that we don't. He knows what he's doing. He knows that the sickness will not result in the permanent death of Lazarus. Um, and so he waits another two days before heading to Bethany. Um, and I don't really want to get into the weeds with, with all of this, but if you look into the locations uh, and time frames involved in this passage, where Jesus was when he received the message, uh, how far he was from Bethany, how long it would have taken him to get to Bethany, the status of Lazarus during all this time, you take all that into consideration. The general consensus among Bible scholars and several commentaries that you will read is that by this time, by the time that Jesus received this message of Lazarus, that Lazarus was probably 
already dead or died very, very shortly thereafter. In other words, even if Jesus had left to Bethany the moment he got word that Lazarus was sick, he still wouldn't have been there in time to heal him. And Jesus knows all of this. None of this is a surprise to him. But just imagine the surprise of his disciples when two days pass by and Jesus decides that now is the time to head into Bethany, go pay Lazarus a visit. He says, I need to go awake Lazarus out of his sleep. Uh, and at, at first his disciples are thinking, well, Lord, if he's, if he's asleep, then that's good. You know, sleep is necessary for healing. Uh, he's getting rest. That's, 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 that's wonderful. I think we should just leave him alone so he can recover, right, Lord? And I think it's kind of funny because the Bible says that Jesus plainly said to them, oh, no, Lazarus is dead. Well, now imagine what the, what the disciples are, are thinking at this point. Jesus, didn't you say two days ago that this sickness was not unto death? Does this guy really know what he's talking about? You know, and I'm sure they were all very confused. But remember, I'll say it again, when nothing really seems to make a whole lot of sense to us and we can't understand what's going on, Jesus knows what he's doing. But Jesus didn't, did give a, a hint as to what he was doing behind all of this. And in retrospect, it's not really a hint. It's, it's the very clear answer as to what he is doing with this entire situation. Remember back in verse number four, when Jesus said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And he reiterates that purpose once again in verse 15 when he says, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe. Think about how jarring. Again, I, I, I like to try and put myself in the situation and just soak in whatever we would be, whatever we would be hearing, right? You just hear that this, this person whom Jesus loved is dead. And Jesus says, I'm glad I was not there. All right. Uh, think about how jarring of a statement that would have been for these disciples to hear. As we know from reading the Gospels, the disciples weren't always the best at fully grasping the things that Jesus said. And Jesus many times had to get on them for that very reason. But I imagine there was a bit of shock amongst the disciples when he said that statement because it seemed to contradict what the disciples knew about Jesus and his relationship with Lazarus and his sisters. Yes, this man is, is a very close friend of mine, Jesus is saying, and whom I loved dearly, he's dead now. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. Glad? Well, the last part of his statement is extremely important because he says, to the intent ye may believe. You see, Jesus, otherwise known as God, knows what he's doing. And when he does things, he comes at it from a perspective that really we cannot come from because we are not God. And we are not omniscient, but he is. Do you know what Jesus was doing in every single situation that he faced here on earth? The answer is very simple. Jesus did God's will. Jesus did whatever was wise to do. I like to say that wisdom is doing whatever Jesus would do if he were you. Because while we can give a thousand different definitions for what wisdom is, I want to give you two tonight, uh, a practical definition and a biblical definition of wisdom. Wisdom in the practical sense, and Pastor Ingram has used this, uh, this, this same definition before, and I thought, yep, that's pretty spot on when I heard it. The practical definition is 
this. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. Right? Taking all of the knowledge and facts that you have into consideration and using them to follow the best course of action. That's the practical definition of wisdom. The biblical definition of wisdom is defined for us in Proverbs 1.7. Solomon, the wisest man that has ever lived, according to God himself, says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, what in the world does that mean? In a nutshell, it, it means that true biblical wisdom will always seek to glorify God. Always. That is true biblical wisdom. Let me say it like this. Wisdom is how Jesus would handle all of your situations if he were in your shoes, because in every situation, Jesus' primary focus was to glorify God. And that really goes along perfectly with the practical definition of wisdom, because we know that Jesus, being God the Son, knows all of the facts already. He knew all of the facts surrounding Lazarus' death. He knows all of the facts surrounding the very trial that you're in the midst of right now. And with all of those facts in mind, he proceeds ever so masterfully, making the best possible decisions that will result in God getting all of the glory. In other words, he knows what he's doing. This brings us to point number two. When God is late, keep waiting because... He will exceed our expectations. You know, a strange thing that's not really strange, but it's kind of awesome. uh, That's very evident in in the word of God is that very often when God gets the glory, we benefit from it. And we benefit greatly from it. We read in that passage that Jesus finally got to Bethany. Lazarus had already been dead for four days. And again, just based on that fact alone, this means that when Jesus got the message back in verse four, Lazarus is more than likely already dead at that point. Now, I don't know exactly when Mary and Martha sent the message or how long it took for the message to get to Jesus. But the point is, it was already too late. But upon hearing of the sickness of his good friend Lazarus, Jesus doesn't stop all his plans and make a beeline for Bethany. Uh, like I'm pretty sure Mary and Martha would have assumed he would do. But instead, Jesus hears the message and then stays where he is for another two days before heading off to Bethany. But the entire reason that Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus in the first place was so that he could come and heal their brother. And frankly, you can't blame them for that. They, they expected that. I don't blame them for expecting that because Jesus had kind of done that Several times before, he's healed multitudes. You know, they were good friends with Jesus. They probably knew him better than most people because he stayed with them and he, he communed with them on several different occasions. He was good friends with these people. And they've heard stories of Jesus healing multitudes. So why in the world would their situation be any different than everybody else's? And so obviously they're going to send word to Jesus whenever Lazarus is sick so that he can come and heal their brother. And I would say that based upon what they already knew about Jesus, it makes perfect sense that Mary and Martha would set those expectations. But here's the thing. Jesus did not come to meet our expectations. He came to exceed them. Here's the funny thing about the Christian life. The sooner you realize that you know absolutely nothing, the better off you will be. That's when you will actually begin to see God work in ways that you have never imagined. Because, think about it, if God is only working in ways 
that you can imagine? What's so miraculous about that? Isn't that why Paul says in Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Or why Paul says in Ephesians 3.20, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. You see, when we as finite, imperfect beings think that we have found out or figured out God's ways, we prime ourselves for an attack on our faith like we have never experienced before. Let me explain. One second. Please spare my feelings whenever I say this. And don't say amen, Brother Autry, please. Uh, But as many of you already know, I have a lot of faults. If you've spent 12 minutes with me at all, you know I have a lot of faults. Um, But probably the one that has caused me the most personal aggravation and sorrow in my life is that I am what you would call a textbook overthinker. I overthink everything. And you know what I've come to define overthinking as for a Christian? Overthinking is me trying to wrap my puny little mind around an incomprehensible God. I just can't do it. Isn't it funny, though, when we think that we've got God's plans figured out? And don't lie. Please don't lie. We've all been there. I know I'm not the only one with this. Where we read into every little nuance of a scenario like we're Sherlock Holmes trying to detective our way into figuring out what God is doing. And, you know, we're, we're seeing signs on billboards and we read somebody's bumper sticker. We look up in the clouds and we see a cross and we think, oh, yes, the Lord is, is doing something, right? And we just, we're just figuring out what we want God to do. And we're just grasping at anything that we can to fit into that mold. And we start painting a very vivid picture in our minds of what we believe God is doing in our lives based upon all of these little clues that we figured out. And we think that we have deciphered the will of God. No, no. What happens is we start setting expectations of what we think God should do based upon what we think we have figured out to be God's will. But what we're actually doing is trying to cram an incomprehensible God into a box that we can comprehend with our puny little minds. And again, I'm in no way trying to speak poorly of Mary and Martha That is not my intention at all with this because I can't imagine that I would handle this situation any better than they did. Uh, But that's why when both sisters saw Jesus, they ran to him and said, Lord, had you been here, my brother wouldn't have died because they set their own expectations for what they figured Jesus was going to do. You know, they imagined Jesus getting that message and rushing back back to Bethany and healing their brother. That's what they expected. What they did not expect, however, was for their brother to die and for Jesus to raise him from the dead. That wasn't even on their radar. And we know that that wasn't on their radar because when Jesus tells Martha in verse 23 that her brother will rise again, Jesus is speaking literally that moment he is going to rise again. But the Bible is very clear in telling us that Martha, she thinks that he's referring to the second coming of Christ. And as, as we'll read in verse 39 in a little bit, uh, Martha protests when Jesus says to open the tomb, saying that Lazarus has already been dead for four days and now his body stinks, uh, which is another indicator that they were not at all expecting Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. 
But don't miss this. When their expectations of what they thought Jesus was going to do did not get met, it resulted in sorrow. Even though Jesus was planning on exceeding their expectations from the very beginning. And don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm, I, I don't want anyone to think that uh, this, what I'm saying means that we shouldn't expect anything from God because that's falling into the other ditch. Uh, what I'm saying is that when we set our expectations and they don't get met the way that we intended, it should not lead us to sorrow, but rather it should lead us to rejoice in the fact that that only means that God has something far better in store for us than we ever imagined, even if the situation that we're facing seems completely contrary to that idea. See, we drive ourselves to sorrow when we think so highly of ourselves to think that we can figure out the ways of a sovereign and providential God. Because what's going to happen when you, when you think you've got God's plans figured out is that you will start to look for a sign to validate all of your assumptions like I was talking about before. And when you look for a sign, you know what you will find? A million of them. But all they point to is what you are wanting God to do rather than what God is actually doing. And what God is actually doing is always, always better than the expectations that we set. But when the situation plays out a little further and you find out that all of those things that you were 100% sure were signs from God were nothing more than false alarms of what you thought to be God's will, but you actually, uh, actually just turned out to be your personal wants, you then become very discouraged. And you start to doubt whether or not God was even doing anything in the first place, whether, whether or not God is even listening to you, whether or not he even cares and there's an attack on your faith, and we begin to question God. The reality, though, is that He does care more than you could possibly imagine. And that He was and still is doing something, just not at all the way that you would do it. Because He's got all of the information that we don't have. He's got the perfectly pure motive for what he's doing because as Isaiah 55 clearly says, his ways are way higher than our ways and his thoughts are way higher than our thoughts. They're so far from each other that they are not even in the same universe with each other. That's how high God's thinking is compared to ours. And believe me, the reason that I can so easily articulate the process of overthinking and seeking for a sign is because I've been there. Unfortunately, that's how I've lived basically most of my life. And at times I just think back and, and cringe at how arrogant I had to be to think that I could somehow figure out the ways of an almighty God. Which is why I can say with complete confidence now, the sooner you realize that you know absolutely nothing, Amen. the better. In other words, the sooner you realize that you can never and will never figure out God, you know what you will find? Rest. Amen. Because at that point, you can say, yeah, I have absolutely no idea what, what God is doing right now, but I know he's doing something, right. and I know it's better than anything that I can come up with for myself. 
And I think he's, he's got it under control. Uh, so I, I'll just keep trusting in him. Now, I speak from experience, and many of you can testify as well when I say that that is a much more peaceful way to live life than the alternative of constantly reading into every little minute of your life trying to crack the code of God's will. You cannot do it. And frankly, you don't want to. Because you know what I hear, you know what you hear when, when we hear someone talk about how they have figured out life and that they can intricately lay out all, uh, all of their, their progress in a series of logical steps of how they gotten from, from A to B. Do you know what all that actually is? When I hear that, all I hear is the story of a life that God had no part at all in crafting. Because when God is the one writing our life story, we won't be able to explain it logically. I don't want to be able to explain my life. I, 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 I don't think you do either. I want people to look at my life and, and say, how in the world did this dude get here? How, what, 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 how, how is he doing that? I know he's not, you know, I know he's not cut out for that sort of thing, but how in the world did he get here? Not so that I can pat myself on the back, but all the meanwhile, I'm just standing in the corner just saying, I don't know, ask him, right? And that's, that's what I want. I want to be able to say, God did it, all right? I want to live a life, and I think many of you do as well, in which the only way to describe it is to say, God did it. But that does not happen by God meeting our expectations because our expectations are nothing compared to God's. It only happens by God exceeding our expectations. And when that happens, when God exceeds our expectations, so does point number three. When God is late, keep waiting because he will get all of the glory. And this is the ultimate purpose of our trials, really. This is the, the ultimate purpose of all of our waiting. You see, God is always desiring for our relationship with him to grow. He's not at all content with a superficial relationship with any of us. He desires to reveal more of himself to us if we're willing to let him. And when we experience a whole new wonderful side of God that we've never known before and we just stand in awe of who he, he is and how he just revealed himself to be yet another I am that we needed him to be in a critical moment in our life, the result is that he gets all of the glory, just like he did in this situation. Let's pick back up in verse 39 and finish off this, this story. John chapter 11, verse 39, it says, Jesus said, take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God? There it is again. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, loose him and let him go. Amen. Then many 
of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. I said this before, and this text is a perfect example of this. The primary purpose for God's miracles is not our personal benefit. While we do benefit from from God's miracles, our personal benefit is simply just a wonderful byproduct of God's miracles. That's it. The reason for Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead was not because he felt bad for Mary and Martha losing their brother. The reason was not even because he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, although he did. The ultimate purpose for Jesus performing this miracle and every other miracle that he has performed to this day is the glory of God. That's it. And Jesus even said it. Remember all the way back in verse 4. This will be like the fourth time we've read this verse, but it's so crucial to this passage. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. That's pretty clear. And isn't that exactly what happened in verse number 45? Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. And the purpose that Jesus alluded to earlier in this chapter in verse 15 when he said to the intent that ye may believe at that moment was fulfilled. But here's what I think is the sweetest part of this entire account. Do you remember the two names that Jesus revealed himself to be to Martha? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, Jesus made that statement before He raised her brother from the dead. But here's the question. Do you think Martha believed Jesus when he made that statement? I think she did. I think she believed it. But don't miss this. Martha would have never experienced Jesus as the resurrection and the life as he intended her to experience if it wasn't first for the trial of losing her brother. See, so often we feel like God is late to intervene in our lives because we're keeping the same view of him that we've always held. And keeping the same view of God is not necessarily a bad thing. Martha made a pretty definite proclamation of who she believed Jesus to be in verses 21 through 27. I mean, in in summary, she admitted that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God that has the power to forgive sins, heal the sick, and will eventually raise up the dead in the last days. All true statements. Those, that's, a, that's a pretty solid description of Jesus. If you were to hear anybody say those things about Jesus on the street, you'd be like, yeah, they got a pretty good idea of who Jesus is. But what God wants us to realize is the same thing that he wanted Mary and Martha to realize 2,000 years ago. And that is, we do not know everything about our incredible God. And while the truths we do know and experience of him are wonderful, He still wants to reveal more of himself to us. He wants us to experience another level of who he is. Martha's view of Jesus was good. But what Jesus was saying through this trial was, Martha, I have so much more for you to know about me. There's another side of me that you can't even comprehend unless you go through this trial. Unless you go through this period of waiting on me. I I feel like we can easily fall into this this trap 
um, as, as Christians of getting complacent with our relationship with God. So almost sort of like a uh, like a passivity where where our with our relationship with God, kind of like we know enough about him uh, and have experienced him in many ways that we get content and start to stagnate. But that's not how God is. Because while we do that, God is, is looking at us and he's saying, yeah, you, you've experienced me as, as your joy, but you haven't experienced me as your comforter. Yes, you, you've experienced me as your guide, but you haven't experienced me as your strength. You've experienced me as, as your provider in a time of need, but you haven't experienced me as your peace. And the list can go on and on and on. But here's the thing. You don't really get to experience God as your joy unless you first go through the trial of sorrow. You don't get to experience God as your comforter unless you've been through the trial of discomfort or experience God as, as your guide unless you've experienced aimlessness. You don't get to experience God as your strength unless you've been through the trial of weakness. You don't get to experience God as your provider unless you've been through the trial of lacking a great, great need. You don't get to experience God as your peace unless you've been through the trial of chaos. God reveals himself to us through trials in ways that we could only experience in a trial. The, the very well-known author C.S. Lewis, he wrote The Chronicles of Narnia and several other uh, famous books, Mere Christianity, Screwtape Letters, all those. He said it this way, God allows us to experience the low points of life in order to teach us lessons that we could learn in no other way. See, in the midst of every unfavorable circumstance in our lives, there stands a new view of God that you have never known. You may know it intellectually, and I think that's where we get the disconnect. We know a lot of things intellectually. We can name off all these names of God, but knowing something intellectually is different from knowing it experientially. And that new view, that, that new characteristic of God will only be experienced as God intended when walking in the midst of that trial, when going through that long stage of waiting on him. That's why God allows trials into our lives. That's why God makes us wait seemingly forever for things that we desire so badly to the intent ye may believe. Believe that God is who he says he is because you've experienced him in the midst of that trial and in the midst of all that waiting. And not just to the intent that ye may believe, but to the intent that others may believe as well. That's what a testimony is. It's proclaiming the goodness of the Lord and how he has helped you through a trial in your life so that others will hear, get encouraged, and believe him to do the same thing in their life. And because one person went through a trial, experienced God in that trial, and gave a testimony of it, you know what it does? It opens the door for God to do the same thing that he did in your life in someone else's. I'll tell you, there are, there are some men in this room that I am a lot closer to now than I was a few years ago because they gave a testimony. They gave a testimony of how they were in the midst of a dark trial that they thought that they would never get out of. A testimony of how the Lord had delivered them and gave them victory and rest over that trial. And I know that trial because I was going through that same trial for most of my life. But when I heard that testimony 
of what God did in somebody else's life. I also heard the Lord say in my heart, you see what I did for them? I want to do the same thing for you. That's the power of a testimony, but that does not happen unless we wait on the Lord and seek him in the midst of our trials. You see, too, so often we, we, we pray that we don't go through difficult times, and that's not necessarily a bad thing to pray, but we, and I've fallen into it too, we chafe whenever we come into a difficult situation in life, but to, to desire a life with no trials is the same exact thing as desiring a life with no miracles. Without any miracles, how in the world will people believe on the Lord like they did in verse 45? What in your life will cause them to want anything that you have? A perfect life with no trials will not change people's lives. But a life that's riddled with seemingly impossible trials, but the God-given supernatural enabling to endure them will change lives. Nobody wants to hear how perfect your life is because, frankly, they know that you're lying and hiding something and because a perfect life does not help anybody. But when a hurting person, a broken person, hears about how you went through the same exact thing that they're going through, and God gave you victory over a lifelong battle with sin, or how God provided for you in a critical moment in a way that you can't even explain, or how God gave you inexplicable peace and comfort in the midst of great sorrow and pain. People are very, very interested in hearing something like that because that is truth and and experiencing God that changes lives. And in those moments, the divine purpose for those very trials and the miracles that followed them is fulfilled because more people believed And God gets all the glory for what he did. When God is late, keep waiting. Because he knows what he's doing. And because he knows what he's doing, he's going to exceed our expectations. And because he exceeds our expectations, he will get all the glory. And finally, when God is late, keep waiting because really, he's right on time. As I mentioned earlier, the the whole title of this message is basically a big joke uh, because the reality is that God is perfect. Therefore, he is never late. And I think, again, intellectually, every one of us in this room would admit that. But how we respond to the trials that God allows in our lives or the delays that he allows in our lives is what really proves whether we believe that to be true or not. If I were to summarize this, this whole message, all I would need would be three words. Just keep waiting. And when I say that, the common misconception would be to think that if someone is waiting, then that means that they are doing nothing. But waiting on God is anything but passive. Waiting on God means continuing to pray fervently through the trial. Waiting means trusting in God, even though your feelings are screaming at you to do otherwise. Waiting means doing all that you know to do while believing that God will do whatever he wants to do. Waiting means resting in the fact that God loves you more than you could possibly comprehend, that he is for you, and that he only desires the absolute best for you. Waiting means that believing God wants to and will use exactly what you are going through 
to bring glory to his name. If you're going through a trial, ask God to use it to reveal himself to you in a new way that can only be experienced in that trial. If you're in a period of waiting, don't just sit there and wish for God to change your circumstances so that you don't have to wait any longer. Ask him to reveal what he wants you to change and what he wants you to how he wants you to experience him. Because I guarantee you, one thing that God does not want for us to do in trials or in a period of waiting is to stay the same throughout it. But he does want you to draw nearer to him. I feel like God often makes us wait longer and go through the trial for a prolonged period of time because we refuse to yield to the very lessons that he's trying to teach us through all the waiting. I'm convinced that 100% of the problems in the Christian life come from one thing, a wrong view of our God. The moment we start to think less of who he is is the very moment that some serious problems will arise in our lives because we stopped trusting in who he says he is. You know, we get so bent out of shape when things don't go our way. And believe me, I have been preaching to myself probably more than I'm even preaching to you. It took me way, way too long to finally grasp all of this. And I'm pretty sure I haven't even fully grasped it. But it helps when we get our priorities straightened out. We were not left on this earth after we got saved so that we could make a name for ourselves. We were left here so that we could proclaim the name of God. And trials and waiting play a critical role in that purpose being fulfilled. So I'll end with this question tonight. How are you going to handle it the next time God is late in your life? Let's all stand.